talk about the ethics of shunyatala. However, before we get to that, I want to talk about ethics in general in relationship to Buddhist practice. Um, I said, or I made some remarks the previous time about the absolute value and importance of ethics as placed in the path. Remember that the path is laid out in three terms, sila, samadhi, panya. Sila, ethical, moral, foundation. Samadhi, obviously the meditational practices, particularly concentration practices, satipatthana practices in the early tradition. And panya, what's usually translated as wisdom, really means penetrating insight into the nature of the way things really are. It's a bit of a mouthful, so they kind of abbreviate it to wisdom. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what we're talking about. So the absolute foundation for this is the development of ethical qualities. And that's across (laughs) the board. It doesn't matter which tradition you're looking at, that um, this notion of ethics and the notion of the ethical foundation is almost a prerequisite for practising. We are in a world, and we're in a world with others, human others and many other types of others uh, than just human beings. Um, And what the ethical foundations in Buddhist practice are there to do is, of course, sensitise us to our being in the world with those others that we share this world with. Um, And all too often, of course, human beings can forget that we do share this world rather than dominate it. Um, And that we, as I say, not only share it with human others, but with many other species, many other types of beings that are in this world. So the whole of the ethical foundation is to sensitise us both to the human and the non-human world in the way that we are in this world. Now, obviously, and I don't need to stress it at this stage in the retreat, love, kindness and compassion are an essential component in that sensitisation. But of course, for us as lay people, then in the human world, and I'm always going right back to where we started in terms of some of the things that we said to you on even the first night, we always go back to the five precepts that we keep. And I don't want to go into detail about these because you would have probably thought about them and and heard many others speak about the precepts. But bear in mind that the precepts themselves, as I think I said at one of the other talks, the precepts themselves are not rules as such. They are not um, commandments, as I would put it. They're not something like the Ten Commandments. They are, in the full formulation, rules of training. They're training rules. They help to, to get us to sensitise ourselves to uh, our speaking and being in the world in varying ways. And I'll just run through them, because they're all formulated in a deliberately ambiguous form, or slightly hazy form, to get you to think about them. If you take the first precept, remember, the first precept is to refrain from harming living beings. It would be far easier just to say, don't kill, wouldn't it? Uh, it would be far more prescriptive to say don't kill. The precepts do not say that. And if you have it in its full version, and I won't go into this for all of them, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. Now, it's deliberately vague. It's deliberately vague because it's got to make you examine your relationship of doing harm. Now, obviously, killing is harm, as I've said before. 
but it's got to make you look at the wider sense of the ways that we do harm in this world. So that is why it is formulated in that way. I undertake a rule of change to refrain from taking what is not given freely or offered freely. Um, again, it's about sensitising yourself because there is so much we appropriate you know, in this world. I mean, this could actually bring you into looking at your relationship with the environment. What are you taking from it that's not being offered freely in many ways? Um, because as despoilers of the world and despoilers of the earth, which we all unfortunately are to some extent, we're often taking what is not given freely. Uh, but it comes down to all the little things, perhaps daily practices that go on in things like offices, you know, paper clips and telephone calls and all the sorts of stuff that goes on and people just use them and take them and appropriate them. Again, it would be far easier, wouldn't it, if the rule said, don't steal. <laughs> much, much easier, much clearer. But again, it's to place you in that relationship with you know, your ethical being in the world. Of course, as I mentioned before, and I'll just say it again, that the third precept is not just about sexual misbehaviour. Uh, it's not that. It's about sensual and sexual misbehaviour. Um, convenient. I think it actually says a lot about the West. It always gets translated in that way. Our obsessions, obsessions with sexuality in general, they just miss the sensual bit, you know. And there's probably, for most people, far more abuse that goes on in the sensual than perhaps the sexual. <laughs> you know, with overeating and overindulgence and the kind of pampered lifestyles, particularly that often people lead in the West, wanting that uh, kind of being stroked sensually, in a way, um, that the West does very nicely <laughs> for us. Um, so there's an awful lot of clinging, there's an awful lot of attachment to the sensu. And again, it would be far easier, wouldn't it, for the rule to say something like, you know, don't commit adultery or don't, you know, um, don't engage in sexual misbehaviour. It doesn't say that. It says something actually far more profound and something we come, need to come into far more of a relationship with. Then, of course, there is, you know, undertake a rule of training to refrain from false speech. Not don't tell a lie. <laughs> Yeah. Now, false speech is... What is false speech? Is it that little exaggeration that you make in telling a story? Yeah. Is it the big lie? Well, of course it's the big lie, but, you know, actually a lot of that's not necessarily going on. So it's, again, the whole notion of this precept is to put us into the relationship with our speech acts. What's actually coming out of our mouths? You know? um, in fact, is false speech sometimes just wrong speech? Is it just that? You know, and if you look at the definition of what right speech is, it's actually defined in terms of what it is not. You know, right speech is not false speech, it's not harsh speech, it's not divisive speech, and it's not idle chatter. Is there anything left to say? <laughs> 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 Probably about that, yes. <laughs> but if you, if you look at that, there isn't really... Um, in a way, I'm joking about it, but there's not really a lot left to say in the sense if one is cutting out that. You know, so it actually makes you put you in relationship with your speech acts in general. With thinking, surely. Pardon? <coughs> and, with and with thinking, yes. Yes, that's right, because a lot of speech acts are going on in your mind, even if they're not verbalised. <laughs> yeah. 
Now that could relate to the first one. Is it doing harm as well? Because a lot of what passes, particularly in the definitions of what it's not, are certainly doing harm. Harsh and divisive speech, the deliberate you know, attempt to mislead through false speech. You know, this is why it's so, it's so important. Now, if you are trying to do all those four, you know, to undertake those rules of training, to refrain from, as a rule of training, to sensitise yourself in the ethical, ethical sphere, I think you'll get a very good reason why the fifth precept is there. The fifth precept against, you know, taking intoxicants which cloud the mind is there because, you know, I tend to joke about this, but if you take the intoxicants that cloud the mind, you're likely to commit all of the above, <laughs> aren't you? Um, that's what happens. You know, when the mind is clouded by um, any kind of substance which is actually deliberately clouding it, then there is the likelihood or the chance of something occurring in that list of the four above the fifth precept, which is obviously bringing you into an incorrect relationship with the world. And that is the reason why. The other reason, of course, for this is not prudery. You know, alcohol is quite common in the Buddhist society. But if you've read the Sigalavada Sutta that I left out, and that translation I left out for you, you will understand the reason why. All the sorts of things that happen in lay life um, you know, through drink. I mean, British society it kind of becomes a real big problem these days, and it is in a lot of Western societies. Um, and the other major reason, of course, is if the whole nature and, if you like, thrust of Buddhist practice is to clarify the mind, why would you <coughs> deliberately want to cloud it? <laughs> if the whole point about the practice is to get as sharp an awareness as you can possibly have because of the likelihood of transgression, the likelihood of moving into, you know, into falling foul, of the ethical precepts that we have, that is the reason why the fifth precept is there. Now, again, it's a rule of training. It's not an absolute commandment. You know, so, again, it means that you have to look at your relationship with drugs and intoxicants and things that you might use, which possibly could have the effect of clouding the mind. But as I say, it's not simply there out of prudery. Is actually there for an extremely good reason. Yes, do you know? All five are working with the three poisons in one yes. way or another. That's right. All of them are working. They're all about gaining clarity in our lives. That is the absolute foundation. That is the foundation. That's kind of minimalist foundation. Things get more complex and sometimes more difficult. But at least you're training yourself in an awareness. The monastic... Code is exactly the same. I'm not going to go into it because it doesn't really concern us. But in many ways, it's just creating greater and greater awareness about being in this world, and particularly being in a community. Uh, that is what the monastic rules are primarily about. You know, we don't have the 227 or the 258 of the Dharmaguptaka. We just don't have those. We have five. Sometimes you can take eight, and sometimes you can take ten, if you really want to be stringent. Um, but as a minimum, we have these five precepts, and they're, if you like, the guidances through life. There's a way that we kind of shine the torch, ethically and morally, around our being in the world. You know, and obviously, um, precepts like the first precept affect everything. 
that we come into relationship, the relationship of harm, you know, that we can so easily, through unawares, enact. You know, we can do harm to others thoughtlessly, mindlessly. Obviously, the complete opposite to what this practice is about, which is developing mindfulness, awareness and sensitivity to what is around you and those who are around you. So that is the reason. Now, one of the other reasons why we don't act ethically, and this is coming into the area where I really wanted to talk about this evening, is that we're so full of ourselves. <laughs> we're brimming up with ourselves. <laughs> Now, I'll come back to something I said when I was just touching on this in the previous talk. It probably seems like a long way away now, but in the previous talk I gave, I was touching on the actual root meaning of the word shunya here, which means to swell as well. Now, I think this is a wonderful image, the image of something swollen, because the image of something swollen is something hollow, actually, as well. It's got no substance to it in, you know, inside it. Um, many of you might know T.S. Eliot's poet, The Hollow Men. We are the hollow men, heads stuffed with straw. <laughs> that idea. Yeah, so this idea of hollowness is what is actually being indicated by shunya. But it's also another side is being indicated by the term shunya is fullness. And really perhaps now rather than the word hollowness, perhaps we ought to use the word voidness. In knowing that I am void or devoid of self, I am full of the world. Yeah. That is really what's being indicated in the term shunya. Now, in other words, the self is the dropping away of this hollowness. Now, I'm using it in a very strong sense of the word that often we feel. Being a self, as I've indicated you, going back you know, a couple of weeks ago to the Anatta talk I gave. Being a self is a very difficult proposition. Yeah. Um, it's something we find very, very difficult, uh, although we're extremely attached to it, uh, being a self. Um, but in that experience of being a self, sometimes there is some kind of existential sense of being nothing within it. The boredom, the futility, the frustration of life, all of this is dukkha, of course. And actually one of the meanings of the word dukkha that I gave you, of course, again, is a hollow space, is a dirty space, actually. So when there is self and when there is, in a sense, the two are almost synonymous. When there is self, there is dukkha. Yeah. They are both hollow. They are both spaces, which don't actually... When, they, when we're strongly trying to hold ourselves together, allow anything else to enter into us. So when I joke about it and use that phrase, we're full of ourselves, being full of a self, which is a very painful experience, actually, most of the time, particularly when we sense the boredom of it, uh, the repetition, the frustration, um, touch sometimes on that hollowness, that life somehow feels hollow and it's not productive of anything that we really, really want in life, then you can see part of the problem. 
This is this is the problem. Yeah. Yet we're desperately clinging to this idea of being a self. So when there is self, the world cannot enter. You cannot enter. You're only you're just you know, objects for me as a subject. Now ethically, in that case, when a subject is confronted by a world of objects, there is plenty of a scope for abuse. And that is actually, in some senses, the origins of our abusive relationship with others, human and non-human others, is that they are not seen and let in to one's consciousness in any meaningful sense of the term. They can't get in. You know, there is this obfuscation of our, of our ability to perceive the other. So this, you know, the other cannot literally enter. We come into no relationship. And relationship, of course, is you know, building correct relationships because that's what it, you know, being in line with the way things really are is what this path is about. How to live in accordance with the way things are. The term dharma is descriptive and prescriptive. It describes the way things are and says, now, get on with it. Live in accordance with the way things are. If you've really, really discovered that in your experience. However, when there are selves, there is no real relationship. Because I am an object for you as a self... You're an object for me as a self. And so we have these isolated egos or selves drifting through the world and in a sense being abusive. That's pretty bleak, isn't it? I'll try and cheer it up in a minute. (laughs) Um, And you see this, but there is literally no space for the other to enter. I I had this, and some of you who been to me when I'd been teaching before will have heard me say this and, and it was something that struck me many years ago when I came across a cartoon um, which was actually a cartoon of, uh, of a man and a woman sitting together and obviously talking and sharing a meal or something because there's a kind of candle in the middle and a couple of bottles and a, you know, dinner plates and that and um, he's leaning across the table and above the bubbles in his head of which there are many it's actually quite a big cartoon it just goes, every time you're leaning across, and it goes, me. Me. <laughs> me. And it goes on for about ten squares like this. <laughs> and then finally, obviously, he's finished what he's saying, because he leans back in his seat, and she leans across the table, and above the bubble in her head comes me. <laughs> and he just goes, oh. <laughs> And I thought, actually, that in that kind of little cartoon, there's actually an awful lot about the way that we never actually really relate at all. We never allow the other in. Now, I'm saying this in very generalised sense. Obviously, you have to see how this fits in with your experience or if anything, any of it's true whatsoever. But it's trying to, I'm trying to present a generalised view of actually how we come to be often in abusive relationships where there is only me and me. And the me's never come together. And if any of you are familiar with Harold Pinter plays, particularly the early ones, you realise that nobody ever talks to each other. There's a lot of dialogue, but nobody actually ever talks to each other in Harold Pinter plays. And that's often actually what's going on in human life. (laughs) That there actually is no 
communication because there's no realization of interconnectedness whatsoever. There's no realization that we are dependent on each other. The ethical relation is a relationship of dependence, allowing yourself to be open and to be dependent on others. Now, there's this kind of myth, and it goes back to John Donne, doesn't it? Every man's an island, this kind of idea. This is the opposite of that idea. This is the opposite of the idea that really in the West grows out of the Renaissance understanding of ourselves as separate. That we are separate and we are not, in a sense, responsible for each other. It's the very opposite of the idea that we're independent, putting it very strongly. And I touched on this at the previous time I was with you. Because, actually, if we begin to look at this very seriously, then you realise, of course, that we're as helpless as children. This is our actual position in the world. Everything, everything that we have... If we're talking even about possessions, the clothes I wear, the food I eat, we're always dependent on others, in a sense, offering them, giving them to us. Now, I'm not talking about purchase or anything like that. If you just think about it, all of us are dependent on the seasons, rain, the wind, the frosts. You know, and these are all kind of non-human things, and we're also responsible. We're also kind of dependent on all of those workers, the myriads of hands, as is often pointed out sometimes, particularly in Tibetan texts, the myriads of hands through which anything that you eat and consume or wear that things have to pass through in order for them to reach you. In this, so it's actually the picture is the very opposite, isn't it, of independence? Yeah, and actually, there's a tradition within some forms of Japanese Buddhism which is actually very, uh, very strong um, form, um, which is actually to show gratitude rather than ingratitude, to be grateful in a sense every day for what we have for what is, in a sense, offered to us in our lives. Now, it's these ideas which are at the very foundation of, in a sense, the ethics of shunya. Because what does shunyata open up to us? You know, it opens up the fullness of being, actually, by taking away the hollowness of who and what we think we are. You know, the who and what we think we are, and really, if you want to see a synonym here, Shunyata is just a synonym for anatta. You know, one speaks Sanskrit, the other speaks Pali in this case. But they are, they are synonymous. If you like, the teaching of Shunyata is just a teaching of anatta writ large across everything. You know, that we are, in a sense, nothing. We are no thing whatsoever. However, that, of course, does not mean that we do not exist. 
It's not a teaching of the illusion of anything, as it is in some other Indian traditions, particularly Advaita, the world is an illusion, the idea of uh, all the things that are around are simply a product of Maya. It's not that idea. The idea, remember, that I was presenting you with last time, was the idea there is no solid, essential nature. And the real one we've got to hear, that's really fundamental to this, is that there is no structured self. There is no self, or there is not a self, as an entity which exists independent of causes and conditions within us. Now that, actually, if one wants to see it, is the teaching of the Satipatthana Suttas. Yeah. That is what the Satipatthana Suttas are doing. Some of you I know are quite familiar with those. You know, the four ways of founding mindfulness is a reasonable translation of what the term Satipatthana means. You know, so we have four ways of founding mindfulness. Body, feelings, mind, and if you like, mind contents or dhammas that go to make up the mind. Each of them is seen as not possessing any substantiality. That is the reason, because from the gross to the subtle, in nowhere, nowhere in any of those, if you like, analytic meditations that one undertakes in engaging in this, and analytic makes it sound almost kind of logical, but it's not. It's a kind of incisive cutting through, cutting through the illusion that there is something fixed and solid in there to discover that vacuousness. That it's heart. There is not an I established in body, feelings, mind, or mind's contents at all. The idea of that I is simply a product. It's an illusion. That is the illusion. It's not that the world is illusory. It's that the I, which seems so central to our normal perceptions, is the illusion in terms of solidity, of any solidity whatsoever. Now, I've kind of tried to make out the case that, of course, when there are eyes like this, when there are competing eyes, because that's actually what happens, when there is me and you, um, there is, well, a high likelihood of abuse in relationships. You can put that in terms of human relationships, or you can put it in relationships with the natural world, um, with other creatures who we inhabit this planet with. There's a very, very high likelihood of that. Because simply, um, you know, I'm only concerned about you because of me. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, um, if you wanted to kind of joke about this, it's actually me first, me second, me third, and perhaps you might get a look in some other, <laughs> at some other point. So it's actually a discourse about me. <laughs> you know, forget the idea of dialogue <laughs> in all of this. Now, I'm sending this up a slight bit here, just to try and make a point, you know, and we can talk about the nuancing of it as we, you know, hopefully when I open it up for questions. But what I'm trying to get you to see is the very nature or the grounding that 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 can give rise to an abusive actual non-relationship with the world and with others 
Of course, where there is that, where there is a self or a me, if you want to put it in those terms again, which is dominant and is the centre of the world, because that is actually the way I see it. I mean, the Buddha actually says when (laughs) there isn't that self, that is when the world ends. Because actually the self is the world for most of us. When it's centred there, that is our world. Everything revolves around. The Buddha gives a very, very striking image of this in one of the suttas. He says the idea of the self is a bit like a dog tethered to a post. All it can do is running round in circles around it. And that's what we do. Uh, he uses another striking image. I'm just giving you to make these points. It gives us another striking image that the idea of a self is a bit like a dog gnawing on a bone that has no meat left on it whatsoever. <laughs> We're just chewing it over. And another one. <laughs> that the self is like a sore that we continuously scratch. Yeah. These are all the, I mean, they're very powerful images that are used in the text to convey the idea that the self is not a good thing. <laughs> I hope you got that point by now. <laughs> but it's not a terribly good thing to be tethered to this post, be gnawing this tasteless bone any longer, or to be scratching this sore endlessly that won't heal. And it is like a superating wound in many senses. Um, what I see is not so much selves, actually, in the world, is wounded selves, actually, because the very nature of being a self is in some way to be wounded and to be carrying that wound through the world. I did say I was going to get cheery, didn't I? But it doesn't seem to be at the moment. <laughs> Hang in there with me. I might get to the cheery bit soon. <laughs> But this idea that we are a wounded self moving through the world, well, what do we do? We move away from this particular form of clinging by beginning to see, as I say, the hollowness, the vacuousness, to that position in the world. And I'm using the world in a much broader sense of the the way the 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 word is being used by the Buddha in that quote I gave you. You know, we move into a position where we begin to experience the vacuousness and the hollowness and the, uh, the no ground on which we stand. We don't actually place our feet fully on the earth, really, until we drop this or begin to start dropping it away in our experience. And it's really, actually, and this is why I'm going into this, it's only really when we move into that position that we stand a chance of coming into the real ethical relationship. And this is why those precepts with which I started are simply rules of training. They are not the end. (laughs) They are just a way of sensitising yourself. They are also ways of decentering the self. They are primarily out of concern for others. The process, if you like, of the path is a gradual, gradual moving away from fixated concern with yourself to actually going, oh, yes, there is a world out there that isn't full of my concerns, isn't full of me, actually. Because the position that we are inhabiting most of the time is 
that the world is simply for me, others are for me. You know, the kind of thing I was joking about a few minutes ago here. It's actually turning us around. There's a poem in Rilke's Duino Elegies, for example, and it says, you know, basically the argument runs through the poem that the human animal is a very funny animal, that the human animal from a very early age is turned around looking into itself most of the time. It never for once, uh, says Rilke in the poem, look out onto the open. Look out into the world itself. It says all animals do it. Human beings don't. They're kind of turned around, obsessed with their own neurotic fixations. <laughs> so the world never really enters here. Now, actually, let me relate that back to something I said quite a while ago in one of the talks I gave. The very one of the roots of the word karuna is kri, which means to turn outwards. So compassion is a turning outwards. I mean, it's one of the many meanings. Most, most of these words have multiple meanings. But that is one of the meanings. And the ancient world, and particularly in Sanskrit and Pali, they love to play with the double, even triple, sometimes quadruple meanings that words can have through their etymologies. So there's this idea, you know, as with shunyata, hollowness and fullness. Yeah. The fullness of the world and the hollowness of the self within it. Within this word, that for compassion to arise, there has to be a seeing. There has to be a turning outwards. There has to be that movement away, as I say, from the fixations that Rilke speaks about in that poem. To see the world, to see others, to see particularly, and this is the foundation of much of Mahayana Buddhism, that the world is in pain. There's an awful lot of pain out there. Now, I don't need to go into that because you've been doing meditations which have been based on the idea that there is suffering, for want of a better word, out in the world. The career of the Bodhisattva hero and heroine of the Prajnaparamita sutras is the person who is concerned not just with their own pain but with the pain of others as well. And as Shantideva says in the Bodhicharyavatara, you know, it makes no sense to talk about my pain or your pain. It only makes sense to talk about pain that everybody is experiencing that we all are experiencing. In a sense, dukkha is the boat that we're all in here. Now, this sense of connectedness is what is coming through the term shunyata as well. The sense of connectedness. Because the world does not disappear when I describe it as being empty. In fact, it stays very much where it is. You know, when I see the absence of self, when I see the absence, to put it in the way I did the other day, when I see the absence of intrinsic existence, of essence, or whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter, but that kind of way that we are nailed or tethered to that post, that we run round and round, and possibly try to detect it in you, try to place you in that position of being a self, being an essence, being this or that, being any particular way I care to posit about you. Yeah. When we start to 
in a sense, turn the tap on and start to drain that away. Well, the world doesn't disappear. Only this illusory sense of how the world is disappears. And instead of a world of isolated individual selves and all the things I've kind of related to, working in subject-object relations with all the possible abuse that that can entail, what we get is a picture of dependency. That is the real message of Shunyata. That's the real message behind it, is that the world is a complex set of dependencies. Everything that comes to be, comes to be dependent on something else. That nothing, as I said in the last talk I gave, nothing arises out of nothing. And it really, it's that sort of message we really have to think home here. Because when we really start to understand that, then we have compassion for the world. Then I'm in relationship with the world, or possibly in relationship with the world, when that, as I say, that draining process starts, when we start to drain the sense of self out of the world, both out of the world of things, you know, here is this much beautiful cushion and I desire it and I want to possess it because it's intrinsically beautiful and wonderful. Yeah, and I'm joking about this, obviously. You know, or the person who I attribute all these qualities to that I just have to possess. Because that's often what it's about. It's about possession. You know, about you know, having something. Yeah. Having myself. It's a pretty miserable business, though. When we start to drain that away, as I say, we come into a world where there is the possibility of real relationship. Real relationship is ethical relationship. When, for example, it's not my pain or your pain, it's our pain, and let's see if we can do something about it. That is, as I say, the meaning of the ethics of Shunyata. Now, in a way, this goes far beyond the training of the precepts. The precepts are, in a sense, to sensitise you, to soften you up, um, to get you to thinking, so that out of this real perception, because that is what it's about, there's no point in just, although the initial stage has to be intellectual, of understanding what this is about, this has to be a real experience. If you want to place it in the early tradition, that is the Satipatthana Suttas. Satipatthana equals compassion. (laughs) That's what it really equals in the end. Compassion equals what goes on in the Satipatthana suttas. Because for the arise of that compassion to happen, there has to be something like the perception of this emptiness of intrinsic being. In other words, that anatta written large that I described earlier on. It's only when that starts to happen that we start to really come into relationship. When, and I mean that in the biggest sense of the word, not just our human relationship. Obviously that's a very important dimension, but it's not the only dimension. You know, it puts us into relationship by taking us out of ourselves. There's a word that's used in in Greek, which is ekstasis, which is the origin of the word ecstasy, which would mean to stand outside of oneself. 
That is what it's about. It's that ecstatic relationship with the world, which can only occur when you stand outside of self. It's the possibility, and I'm talking about human relationship, of dialogue. A real dialogue. Not of uh, what we mostly get, and again I'm perhaps being a little bit cynical here, but please correct me in the questions, of interrupted monologues. (laughs) Which is often what actually passes for dialogue. It's not, as I say, it's like being trapped in a Harold Pinter play a lot of the time, with people not talking to each other, but talking at each other. These things can only come about with that discovery of the devoidness of self. I'm playing, obviously, with that word void and devoid. When we understand that we are devoid of that, then where is our requisite? Where are we thrown? We're thrown out, actually, where we already are, into the world. Now, this world is not the personalised world of self. It's devoid of that self. It's that movement actually onto solid ground. And that solid ground is a ground of relationship. Now, there's one image that's particularly used, and it's in the Lankaravatara Sutra, which is a, a Mahayana text, which is the image of Indra's net. This is the net that connected all things in the world. It's a net that was placed over reality by the the god Indra in the creation of the world. And it's a Hindu myth, but it's used in a Buddhist text to actually show this relationship of interdependencies, which is the world. So in a way, what we've come through in terms of the parts that I've been talking about is, in a sense, the big story. That's there. Anatta, dependent origination, shunyata, and back actually where we are into ethics. Back into our foundation. Now, that, of course, in that ethical relationship, there is kindness, there is compassion, there is the joy at the being of others, and hopefully there's equanimity as well in the holding of this. Because it's actually trying to say, under this vast net of Indra, what's more important than anything else? You can't. Nothing is more important than anything else. In a sense, the idea of Indra's net is a wonderful vision for kind of the ecological consciousness we're getting to now. That actually anything in the chain of being, nothing within that chain of being is anything more important than any other aspect. They're all equally important in that chain of being. Now, we're coming through in a different understanding, obviously, by the kind of crisis that we're going through in terms of the ecology of the world. But it's exactly the same idea. That that smallest bug, that insect, no matter what it is, exists in the chain of being and has every right to be there as much as anything else. As much as ourselves. Sometimes probably even more than ourselves. In this way. So that is the image, the vision that's being conjured up in the ethics of Shunyata. Now the ethics here is not an ethics of prescriptions. It can't be. It's an ethics of context. It's an ethics of what arises in being in this world. 
prescriptions are all very well, but they're pretty inflexible, aren't they? You know, this is a problem with prescriptive ethics. You, know, you have a prescriptive ethics that says you shall not do X, Y, Z. Um, and you can see all kinds of areas where, of course, the so-called ethical prescriptions end up being unethical. Like if I have the ethical prescription, I shall never tell a lie. Wow, that will really get you into some deep water. <laughs> yeah. you know, so it's an ethics in the sense of context. But this does not mean that anything goes. It means a direct seeing into the nature of reality. And the ethics arises, in a sense, out of that direct seeing. Seeing what is necessary. Not bringing, as we do in most of our perception, all of that baggage that we come with. The baggage is there, isn't it? It's like when we are talking, and somebody else is talking, do we listen? Do we really hear? Are we really touched by the call of the other? Because mostly what is occurring in ordinary life is not that emptying for the other to be. Because, using that expression I used earlier, we're so full of ourselves. There can't be any room for the other to be, to let be, in our perception, in our awareness. So when we listen... Actually, there's so much chatter going on that we don't really hear. So we don't often allow ourselves to be able to spontaneously hear the cry, often, of what the other is saying, or within the other's speech. And the same can be said for our other senses as well. That when there is that self firmly fixed, there isn't any room there for others and sense of human beings or the world to really, really enter in. There certainly can't be any room for the spontaneity of action because we are thinking constantly. What we're going to do, and thought becomes a real problem. It gets in the way, and most of the thought, again, without overstressing it is related of course to self self in relationship to the other actually but the self doesn't allow any relationship with the other because it's talking too much (laughs) even when you're silent have you noticed that wonderful phenomenon you're you're talking all the time (laughs) we never we very rarely cease chattering when I'm sitting, when I'm reading, when I'm standing, you know, it's often even when I'm dreaming, you're chattering away. <laughs> you know, so there's never that silence, that space for the other to manifest. Yeah. So actually, one of the other aspects of Shunyata, allowing us to come into ethical relationship, is a quieting, a silencing of bringing us into a quiet space rather than a chattering space. That way, the other gets a chance to manifest. So there's a wonderful expression that's used by the German philosopher Heidegger. He talks about as becoming cleared spaces. Actually, most of us are not. We're very far from being cleared spaces. (laughs) 
Yet if we're not a cleared space, nothing can manifest. It's literally you can't see the wood for the trees. Like being stuck in in a thicket or a forest. Not being able to see anything clearly. So these are what are the implications of the ethics of Shunyata. I could go on, but you know, it's, time is getting on. <laughs> um, but this is what is implied. So we're opening ourselves up into genuine relationship with the world. Um, if you like, getting out of ourselves. Getting out of our heads yeah, in this relationship. Becoming ecstatic in relationship to the world and to others. In that, there is that possibility for the genuine genuine spontaneity of ethical responsiveness. Because actually, I'll give you, I haven't done this so far, but actually in one tradition, and particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, the term karuna is not translated as compassion. It's translated as responsiveness. Uh, the Tibetan translation actually translates as responsiveness mm. of it. So it's the ability to respond to the cry of the other. Yeah. That is what it's about. Yeah, it's not some gooey idea that we can have in our minds often when we hear the word compassion. <laughs> yeah. It's a genuine seeing an ability to respond to what the other needs. Now, that is often spoken about in relationship to the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is somebody who responds to the needs of others. Now, that isn't coming through an idea of what compassion is about, or what is required. But the actual seeing of what is there, that can only take place from this position of knowing that this is not self, this is not me, and this is not mine. That's the only place it can arise from. So if you like, this is why it's often described as compassion and all things arise on the basis of emptiness. They all arise out of emptiness. I'm going to shut up. It's all right, Julian. So can ask a question. (laughs) So us being ecstatic allows the world to exist. Yes, that's right. It allows it to be. Whereas when I am, as I say, fixated, turned inwards in that kind of Rilkean description, then it isn't being at all. It's only for me. It's only tied up with my concerns. And, I mean, this is something you can observe, isn't it, so much, you know. In fact, it's often... (laughs) the way the technological mind, for example, looks at the world and sees something it wants from it. It looks at, I don't know, the river and sees it as a source of hydroelectric power. It looks at the mountain as something to climb or something for the leisure industry. (laughs) It's not, in a sense, in a correct relationship. It's only a relationship of concern and appropriation for ourselves. And that's often the way that ha- that's often what happens with people as well. It's not that I want you to be and allow you to exist in the freedom of that being, but I want you to be for me. You know, and if you're not for me in the way I want you to be, they're going to be real trouble. <laughs> you know, 
because that is actually the fracturing often of what we call normal relationship, is when the person isn't being for the other in the way that they want them to be. And that's, you know, that's what relationship is about. It's about negotiated change. You know, a person does not remain the same. I do not remain the same. You do not remain the same. Any partner we are with will not remain the same. It's how you negotiate that change that becomes important. You know, without it becoming, well, you're not the way I thought you were. And that's terribly sad. I mean, I'm sort of joking about some of this stuff, but it's terribly sad. This is the poignancy that's the heart of a lot of human relationship in the world and what's going wrong is that there is this, you know, the dominance of the ego or the self, you know, wanting something in a particular way. You know, what is the chief mode of being of the self? It wants craving actually that's what it's about it wants to avoid what it doesn't want and it wants what it does want yeah. that's the relationship it has mostly which is a non-relationship yeah. I'm, I'm trying to work human bodies mm -hmm. and we're born that so we have senses. So I sort of wandering around enjoying them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, okay, very simple in a way. Yeah. What the five of them. Yeah. Okay, so how can I, I think myself, how can I enjoy myself without, without it then getting into the rest of the links, you know, mm. craving and all the rest of it? You know, what is the ethics of um, that number two? whatever it's called, sensual and sexual misbehaviour. You know, how do you go about negotiating that? Hmm. Well, it's the, it's the relationship of craving it that's the problem, not that we, not that we are embodied. Embodiment is a gift. Mm. It's a wondrous gift. So it mm. sort of feels like there's a jump that we do mm. to craving. Yeah. But it's kind of like how not to get to... Well, let, let me let me put it in a very in a very stark fashion. What it what it actually happens is, um, you, know, you wander out of the garden, say here, the guy house, pretty quiet, lovely environment, beauty around you, and then suddenly there's the leap in. I always want this around me. I have to have it for me to be happy. That's the mythology. That's the craving yeah. for it. In other words, it's gone then from simple sensory perception into desire for it. Okay. So, and the desire comes from this insatiable emptiness feeling. Yeah, it comes. It comes from the hollow self. Yeah. Actually, okay. that's where it's coming from. And because it's hollow, it wants filling up. Mm. I mean, that's. I mean, I know it's a metaphor, but because it's hollow and it senses its hollowness, it wants to be filled up. It's saying, fill me up. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually, and, and actually that's what often goes on a lot with things like eating disorders. And that. People want to be filled up, literally. They want to be more substantial in their being, in the world. Yeah. Now, there are many, many ways of creating that position, but that grasping after sensory pleasure, sensory desires... 
all of that nexus of things that I've already spoken about in other talks is actually the filling up process. And actually, as I joked about it at the time, even those things we don't like, we don't give away or don't need because they somehow anchor, anchor us to a sense of being. And again, that's about the vacuousness of really what is there. Now, that initial movement, though, that movement of actually appreciating your sensory embodiment is to get you out of here. There's this very famous phrase that some of you will know by Fritz Perls, the Gestalt psychologist, saying, lose your mind and come to your senses, Mm -hmm. which is what it's about. Not to grasp after the senses, but to appreciate one's sensory embodiment. And that's an initial movement. <coughs> so we make the movement out into the world and stop thinking about ourselves. And it really is almost Cartesian that we're trying to establish ourselves a lot of the time through thinking. Yeah. You know, Descartes, you know, I cogito ergo sum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I am. You know, the establishment of being by thinking. Well, this is the opposite movement. You know, moving out into the world, the establishment of being by being. Not in a thinking process. It's not a long answer to a short question. That <laughs> shut me up. <laughs> so when the Buddha says um, relishing or taking taking enjoyment, delighting in sensual pleasure is akin to rubbing burning coals onto mm. your lepromatous wounds, um, he he he's not talking about enjoyment per se. No. He's talking about craving, again. It's that des- yeah, it's the desire. I mean, actually, I prefer the word desire, actually, to even the word craving. It's that desire for something. There's nothing wrong as long as I don't desire it. Yeah, so I can appreciate the beauty of the tree. However, if I'm deprived of it because I live in an urban environment then the litmus test is, you know, am I still desiring that tree you know, to make me feel happy? Because that's the problem, isn't it? It's not our senses or the tree per se, it's a desire to have something because of the mythology that we're telling ourselves about, I have to have it, and without it I cannot be happy. Then that's the problem, because that's the creation of dukkha. So it's not the actual senses per se. That's the problem. Isn't yeah. it the, the desire or the craving, uh, it's linked with uh, um, a wish to possess. It's not just I have an initial desire for something. Hmm. It's, it's the, the possession of the, clinging, the grasping and the clinging to as well, hmm. rather than just the desire. It has, it has a holding effect. It is a complex... It is a complex. It's what I call desire attachment complex, desire grasping complex. You know, it's not just one thing. It's both coming together that that creates, which creates dukkha. It creates the, you know, a much of the human condition, actually. But I was thinking in human relationships. You know, when you, you can have um, a degree of desire, say a passion of, you know, desire to be with somebody, but if that other person doesn't wish to be with you. You know, it, it moves into another kind of space. And it, it's a gra- grasping. Yeah. 
and a refusal to let go. Yeah, it's 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 what I was talking about. Possession. It's about possession. So much of it is about possession. It's the desire to own. Yeah. To own the other, to own the desirable object. You know, I'm not just talking about human beings. And somehow that's going to make you happy. I mean, that's that's again one of the huge mythologies that we have in the Western world, particularly. I mean, it's it's kind of portrayed through all the images of romantic love and you know the, the stuff of pop songs and popular novels and <coughs> television and films and all this sort of stuff is you know kind of that vision of you know you have to have that person be with them possess them in some way that's there sorry Jim. So, so, yeah well that feeds into exactly what i was going to ask you know i mean this is a doubtless universal human condition the buddha was talking about it before big corporations and consumerism mm. but it, i'm interested in what what, <clears throat> what you think having spent time in Tibetan monasteries and Sri Lankan places where they're mm. not assailed by these uh, these messages that you have to have this and you have to have this. Does it, is, is it significantly less? It's it's it it's interesting. It's interesting that it's changed as the world becomes much more globalized, as it becomes a much more you know, global economy and everything else. I've seen it change. Um, in this country or in 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 Sri Lanka and and India. Um, even Tibetan community, I've seen it change. The horizons have changed. The horizons now are the horizons of Western culture, mm-hmm. often, um, that these people possess. You know, when I, I, mean, I went to India for the very first time in 1970. <coughs> you know, so that's an awful long time ago, a clue to age, doesn't it? <laughs> but I went the first time in 1970, and going back over all these years... I've seen it change from being, I wouldn't say a non-materialistic culture, because Indian culture has always been, say, materialistic and same Sri Lankan culture to a degree, but it wasn't Western materialism, if you understand what I mean. It wasn't all the goods and goodies that, you know, that, are, you know, that the advertising constantly is bombarding you with. I mean, I've seen that just in the ten years that I was going through India. Yeah. There was quite a big difference from 1996 yeah. 2006. But would you say that people's minds are yeah. The, the craving has been stimulated. Yeah, it has very, very much so. Because that was that was my impression also. Yeah, it's really been. I mean, I've seen I've seen those cultures change, mm. you know, vastly. I mean, I don't want to overemphasize it because there's still something often within those cultures which is quite strong, and that hasn't as yet, you know, been taken over. But in terms of wanting and the mythology that having these things is going to satisfy. You know, and and somehow make you happy. That is 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 certainly there now within these cultures, and certainly wasn't so prominent. Well, it gets warped over there, doesn't it? Mm. You'll get a TV and a mud hut and a toilet. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you will get that sort of thing occurring. Well, the classic one, the classic one, in some obscure Turkish village once, right on the edge of Iran. Um, in which they obviously had the village television set. <laughs> and, and there was in this tiny, tiny little restaurant, it was little, literally kind of shack, and they placed this television in it, and the whole village gathered around, and I was still talking to my friend, and the whole village in unison went, shh! <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was something like Dallas was on television. <laughs> 
with Turkish subtitles. <laughs> but it's that kind of stuff that yeah, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the Western mindset has taken over. It's, it's there. That's, mm. because that's because it's plugging into this this universal human tendency, which yeah. has not been fed before. But it's yeah. But that's why it's so incredibly subtle. That's right. I mean, it was obviously there in the Buddha's time. Um, you know. Television sets. No. <laughs> no. I mean, the, obviously, the desires of that, because that's what he's identifying. You know, he's, he's identifying that the objects of desire are going to be different objects of desire, obviously, in the ancient world to the objects of desire within the modern world. But unfortunately, technology um, has become you know, globalised. Yeah. But don't they also see Western people becoming very disillusioned with that? Going over to their countries in mm. increasing numbers, too. With the flashy cameras in there. Well, there's that, that, but also going over and and sort of trying to assimilate the the Dharma in some way. Do they not see that maybe it's a dead end? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I can quite unequivocally say nope. Big tourists, yeah, the big tourists. Do you think it's a fire that will burn out? It's like a fire, really. It's like a fire that's sweeping the world. It is, but it's literally what—it's literally one we keep stoking. You know, um, that is actually, you know, what the word sankara means. It was actually a word that was used in ancient India, which meant to place firewood on a fire. <coughs> You know, because you have to keep a ritual fire going. And what the Buddha is doing by using that same term here, Sankara, he was actually saying, this is what feeds the process. This is what feeds the process of Sankara. It's literally like placing wood and keeping the fires burning. So it's actually incumbent on us all, really, to deal with our Sankaras. Know, which is these habitualized tendencies. Now, not all of the sankharas are bad. No, and it's not just to hear that. Not all the sankharas are bad. It's just that the majority of them are <laughs> at this stage. Yeah, we got, as I heard, and again, it's a phrase I wished I'd coined that sankhara is one vast bad habit. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because that's what it is. Because it's habitualized forms of behaviour which create sankhara. And perception. Uh, well, it, it's the same thing in a sense. Yeah, it's, of course, it, it feeds in. I have a problem with this text because I love going to festivals right? and it goes stay away from the fair there's dancing and singing yep and <laughs> yep and actually I get completely out of myself I get completely out of my own head when I do those things mm. completely feel interconnected with the people mm. there whereas if I don't have a telly and I haven't had one ever and I think that will isolate people, right? Mm. Whereas going to festivals will do the opposite. Yeah, but you've got to remember the festivals in the in the ancient world were, in a sense, escapism. They were the opposite of what the Buddha was trying to talk about. This is why he's staying. And also the fact that at festivals and fairs, people can get into all kinds of bad behaviour. I'm not saying it has to happen. What he's saying is... You know, that was the entertainment of those days. That was the escapism. That was the way of, of um, you know, overcoming often quite hard lives. But yeah. compare, like, Buddha Field, for example, mm. where there are no drugs or drinking or anything, mm. to, to Glastonbury, yeah? Yeah. And mayhem. Mm. 
and it's there to interconnect. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But that's not the sort of fair that the Buddha was talking about. <laughs> no. That's not the sort of thing so he's he talking. Wasn't that against dancing. Uh, <laughs> I'd see if I can get a hotline and ask. <laughs> Uh, um, attachment to dancing and singing is bad. That's what he's saying. Yeah, it's like nothing is bad per se. It's the attachment to it that becomes bad. And I said I don't know. I even hesitate to use the word bad. But you're attached to walking, right? In nature. I walk, yeah. Yeah, you're attached to it, aren't you? Am I attached to it? <laughs> <laughs> I can do without it for vast periods of time. Sure, well, <laughs> In this case, he's not talking to a monastic, he's talking to a lay person. Yeah. In the Sagala Sutta, he's talking to a lay person. It's advice to a lay person in, the, in this particular instant. But I think you have to see the nature of what he's talking about. It is the attachment to it, it's the deep attachment to the thing that becomes the problem. You know, and for all of us, we have to look at, you know, I always say, well, is a litmus test, actually. For example, it's just check through your life and say, is there something in my life that I really, really couldn't do without? Because actually that could become a problem. You know, say, for example, I mean, for example, my own case. I mean, I do love walking. I, you know, every weekend I have free, I'll go walking. <coughs> Yet, if I was deeply attached to it, which it could possibly be, then what would happen if, for example, I was disabled? It would cause immense dukkha in this instance. So it's really looking at things like that in your own life and saying, you know, I might not always be able to do that. And that, is that going to cause me immense pain? It's not saying that the thing isn't enjoyable, sure. but it will turn into pain the moment I can't do without it. So it's really looking at your relate Again, it's about relationship. It's looking at your relationship with anything which is there in your life. You know, so that you come hopefully into a wholesome relationship where it, with it where you can let it go when it needs to be let go of. Yeah. Retreats. Yeah. <laughs> I would say exactly the same. Actually, I would say exactly the same for that. But I mean, there are an awful lot of retreat junkies. You know, people are really attached, and I think I even joked about this at one of the other talks, that people really get by on living and surviving by coming on retreat as often as possible. Yeah. That might not always be possible. So people really suffer when they can't do that. Yeah. That's really what you're looking at. What is going to give you pain if you had to do without it? Like you were saying with Elizabeth, the problem isn't the enjoying, the problem is the craving. Yeah. The pleasure is the craving. And do you manipulate your world to, to, to get yeah. your... Yeah, of course we mostly do, yeah. Yeah. Is there some kind of level of naivety in the West now in this idea that I could partake in these things without craving after them? Yeah. Because you see this huge level of renunciation, one that we can probably not even really conceive of, well, mm. I'm sure we can, but in, in the suttas mm. um, that the Buddha's kind of advocating. Yeah. And is that because actually it is really hard to guard against that craving? It is very, very hard. And this is, I mean... I think I might have even said this already, but I'll just reiterate it again. The Buddhist tradition is a renouncer tradition, as you rightly say. Now, 
that very specifically meant, of course, the renouncers who are summoners, who become monks and live the monastic life. However, there is even, as in the Sigala Sutta, implicit in that, a degree of renunciation to the lay life as well. And I think I've spoken to this already about, you know, it really means sometimes you have to give up something that is enjoyable to do something that you perhaps value more. That is part of the training. That is renunciation in lay life. Now, it's not the shaving off your hair and donning the robes and only having eight possessions um, that actually happens in the monastic world. It's a different kind of renunciation, but it's a, it's a, a having to give up something in order to pursue something else which perhaps can be perceived as more valuable. And that's the Dharma. That is what the Dharma is about. So it is about renunciation, even in lay life. All too often there is this tendency, and I think you're right about the naivety, very right, is there's a tendency to want to continue to do all the old things that we do, as well as this. And I think that's what's often going on. And we can, obviously this has to be done on an individual basis. We have to sort it out for ourselves what things are, what things we can drop. Yeah. And again, that's not saying that they're not interesting, they're not enjoyable, they're not stimulating, or any of those things. It just means, what do you value most? That's the question. Or not to pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much new coming out all the time. Yeah. I don't need that. I don't need to have that gadget. Oh. Well, most of these are distractions. Most of the stuff is distractions. Yeah, it really is, if you look at it. Again, it's not because they're not fascinating or enjoyable. Or, yeah, they're certainly enticing, a lot of these things, for most people. But again, it's, it's that valuing. It's what do you really, really value? What's the core of what you're doing in life? That's, if you like, the question. And all the other stuff is amusement, mostly. Yeah. And it's, again, partly to do with trying to fill ourselves up with something. Yeah. sensing that hollowness, sensing that vacuity, again, in often a lot of what we do. So what do we do? We distract ourselves. Um, and a phrase I often use, that we try to amuse ourselves to death. And that's what we're doing. It's <laughs> important not to have aversion towards the gadgets and stuff, because then you fall over the other side of the horse. Yeah, you tip into nihilism. Yeah. Yeah. Or aversion. Yeah. Sort of you don't need to do it. Just say, so they don't, don't need it. Not, don't have to be averse to it. You can be fascinated by something. I mean, people. I mean, just in my own case, people sometimes show me gadgets, and they're fascinating. But I wouldn't want them. <laughs> yeah. There's a beauty to them. There's a, a, a kind of brilliance in how they've been designed and executed and brought into being, and all this sort of stuff. But you just uh, <laughs> they're, they're just a distraction. <laughs> There's a very good example I had with a Tibetan teacher who um, was brought over here, and I think, I can't remember, I was saying this to somebody else recently, so forgive me if I've said it before. But he, he, when he came over here, he wanted to improve his English, so he decided to buy him a television. <laughs> and I had this television in his room, and he had it for about a couple of weeks or so, and one morning they came and it was all packed up back in the box again. And he put it in and said... Uh, you know, I said, um, Geshe-la, what's, what, what's, the, what's the problem? He said, yeah, I can't stay up too late, don't need that. <laughs> 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 Not getting up to do my 
practice in the morning <laughs> as a result of this. And it's things like that, you know, just coming into, you know, yeah, they're enjoyable, but coming into a right relationship with them. This is a problem, you see. I think with the technological world, uh, I think there's a tendency for the, the technology to dominate us. You know, we're enthralled to it. You know, because we have it, we have to use it. You know, rather than the opposite way around. I mean, let's not, let's not be an you know, English word Luddites about this. You know, a lot of that stuff has helped us a lot. A lot of it controls us as well. You know, we don't control it, it controls us, which is a rather peculiar relationship, really, isn't it, if you think about it? <laughs> the TV is keep people together. Mm-hmm. They throw them out. How many percent of relationships will break up? <laughs> <laughs> they talk suddenly. <laughs> well, that's a difficult one, yeah. <laughs> well, they might have to eat together and things like that. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It's it's yeah. It's the it's the thing that sucks you in in the corner of the room. Most people. The one-eyed god. Yep, that's it. <laughs> um, I was also I was looking to what extent or if at all the Buddha ever talked about renunciation in the context of bringing yourself in alignment, actually with the ethical guidelines. Because if you if you think about interconnectedness, mm. um, how that's mirrored in kind of deep ecology. Mm. A lot of what we're doing in modern times to align ourselves with being environmental is to renounce mm. uh, a lot, basically. Yeah. Um, and was that ever talk? I mean, is that ever talk about? It's well, that kind of obviously discussion about aligning ourselves with the environment um, by giving up an awful lot it wasn't really around in the Buddha's day. Remember, it wasn't a problem. In the Buddha's time, or not even in the environment, just mm. generally. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, interestingly enough, both his, his advice to the monastics and his advice to lay people was to be content with little, yeah. not too little, which is abject poverty, but also not too much, but to actually know that middle way, and I think that is actually a phrase that should have deep resonances for us in the modern world because there is so much abundance and so much affluence and so much taking and very little giving often in this world um, that we're not content with little. I mean, I live in a semi-urban environment and I see people accumulating things more and more, you know, um, I think over the last week or so, I've seen about you know, four new cars in the road I live, where the per- ones they had before were perfectly okay. You know, and it's things like that. Now, I don't wish to point the moral finger, but it's just, you know, it seems there's a lot of, again, accumulation uh, simply in order to fill up that hole, again, that hollowness. Yeah. Um, and it would be giving up that kind of stuff. You know, that phrase for me has deep, deep resonances in the modern world, learning and trying to be content with little, because probably most of us have far too much, even if we've got relatively little. The Buddha's idea of the middle path was, you know, cow urine for medicine and sleeping under trees. <laughs> no, no, that was the Nisayas. That's the four, they're the only things you can rely on. <laughs> you know that. <laughs>
Now, for those who are not familiar with what is just being spoken about here, the Buddha says, and this is for monastics, actually. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of sleight of hand, actually, because you agree to be ordained, and then they suddenly tell you at the ordination ceremony, well, actually, there's only four things you can rely on in this world. Um, for a dwelling place, the foot of a tree. <laughs> for clothing, rags collected off a scrappy. <coughs> for food, um, just food scraps which are begged for and finally for medicine fermented cow's urine (laughs) which you know is an absolute wow (laughs) but those are called the four requisites it doesn't mean you have to live like that and in fact they become in the monastic tradition what's called detangas they are austerity practices ascetic practices and there's 13 of them uh, and they're graded uh, as being harsh, mild, and medium. <laughs> so you can have your mild austerity practice, or you can have your harsh austerity practice. But of course, there was one classic um, monk who goes up to the Buddha and says, can I practice all 13 together? <laughs> but he says, no. <laughs> That's macho monk, is it? <laughs> but they are what's called the nisayas or the four requisites still we can't help feeling that that if the buddha was was to you know reappear today and he had looked at the way that many of of us western buddhists live Mm. he would think that we're more on the sort of upper middle path I think yes. I mean, I mean, obviously, given the context, the renounce the renouncer traditions were enormous in India, and in many ways, the Buddha's middle way actually is a middle way between Brahmanism, which is the householder's life, and Jainism, which had even more austere practices than Buddhism. Um, so, for example, I mean, in Jainism, <clears throat> there's the idea in the Jain Vinaya, because they have a Vinaya code as well that you're not supposed to stay in more than one night in one place. So you have to keep moving. A giant monk has to keep moving. They can't live in settled communities. Um, so there's a very extreme practices in Jainism. So he was drawing the middle line between those two traditions of his time. One which was entirely tied to hearth and home, and the other one which was extremely ascetic. So there's many meanings for the word middle way. Are we done? <laughs> okay, speak now, forever hold your peace. You mentioned about, <laughs> you mentioned about, about lying, and uh, as you're obviously saying it's, not a, it's a training preset. Yeah. It's not an absolute commandment never to lie. But equally, the, the inclination is not to lie, surely. Well, the yeah, what I'm saying is it's a training precept. As a training precept, training precepts can be broken sometimes. They have sensibly they are to be broken sometimes. It's not a prescription, and that's what I'm saying. Because uh, a prescription, a prescriptive ethic is saying thou shalt not ever mm. tell a lie. Now you can see how, for example, yes, in certain... person against the soldiers who are chasing him. That's right. That yeah. kind of thing. Repressive regime. Yeah. Right? yeah. 
Hiding to that. That's right. Yeah, Yeah, anything like that. And and also just in ordinary, daily intercourse with people. You know, for example, your best friend or your partner says, do you like this? And you go, ooh, that's absolutely horrible. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there is some times. (laughs) 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 But you see what I mean? That would be harm. That would be harsh speech. So actually, you have to look at the way... And also, telling the truth can be an awful weapon. Mm-hmm. It can be a real way of hurting somebody. But it has to be... Weren't the guidelines also about timely in a gentle way? Yeah. The right, you know, right time, right person. It's contextual. Nicely. It's, conte- it's also contextual. That's right. So there's sometimes... And this is why it's a training precept and not, as I say, a prescription. You know, there's sometimes when it's not appropriate to do that. You know? Sometimes it's more appropriate to, in a sense, um, tell an untruth. You know, for example, in the repressive regime, if somebody is being persecuted and you're hiding them, and they knock on the door and they say, "You know, you're hiding," it, be, "Oh yeah, they're upstairs in the back bedroom." You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know not sensible. <laughs> that's, so that's what I mean about them being training presets and not absolutes. So you're always having to negotiate yourself around them. And that's the important point about them, I was trying to make right at the beginning, is that you have to open up, in a sense, an ethical inquiry or have an ethical vision of the world as opposed to just operating by a set of rules. Now, it's obviously far easier in some ways to operate through a prescriptive set of rules because at least you know where you stand. Whereas this requires, well, to use the way it's usually translated, it needs a degree of wisdom about it. So panya is required, actually, in the exercise of your precepts. Or exercising the precepts, engaging in that inquiry, helps to develop panya. (laughs) And mistakes will happen and that can be a Of course. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, of course mistakes will happen. We're not awakened. So mistakes are going to continue to happen. That's part of our fallibility. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Can I, it's a fruitful area of, of dialogue between Christianity and Buddhism. I don't know anything about interfaith stuff, but this idea of self-emptying and... And taking on the sufferings of the world. That's what God is said to have done, isn't it? So empty mm. the self in the form of Jesus. Mm. But is, it just, is that where people are inquiring at the moment? Or is that helpful? Is that it, it is happening, yeah, it is happening. I mean, there is, but I think particularly within the Christian church and Buddhism, I think because they see Buddhism as such an oddity because of being a non well, it's a atheistic, really, really you know, religious tradition. So I think there's a lot of dialogue. I mean, I can only speak in my own part. I mean, um, in October last year, I went to World Cathedral and gave a talk, you know, to a congregation, a huge congregation there, about 200 people, who turned up, including all the canons of the cathedral and everything who came. Uh, and it was actually about you know, being content with little. That was what I was talking about. Um, and it's interesting because because they come from quite a different angle sometimes. You think you're not going to have contact, but there are some real points of contact as well. And it's quite valuable, I think, in a way, to see that 
you know, certainly in regard to ethics and things like that, there is there is a core of understanding sometimes between different religious traditions. Not that I personally think of Buddhism as a terribly religious tradition in that sense. It's more of an ethical tradition. With religious overtones, perhaps. Would you say a kind of ethical sense is maybe... Um, I don't like to say hardwired in, but it's part of our... Um, heresies just as human beings, because you do seem to see it across the across any, any culture that I have any knowledge of. There is mm. an ethical sense, and we have a sense of what's right and wrong, which develops at a certain age. Mm. And, you know, then that maybe gets codified into it. But there do seem to be some very... Um, yeah, there are commonalities, but there are also quite a lot of differences, particularly if you use well-known. I mean, if you live within a culture, you see some of the differences as well, mm. um, some very, very real differences. But a sense of right and wrong? Yeah, definitely. Even if the, the specifics <clears throat> vary, there's yeah. an ethical sense of something that we have. Well, there's actually a distinction that's made. I won't go into it now because it's a bit too late, but there's a distinction made in, in certainly the Abhidhamma tradition, which comes out of the um, Pali suttas two terms which are used which really <coughs> indicate our moral and ethical behaviour and these two terms are hiriyanotapa. Um, here is used to translate as shame. I don't actually like it as a translation. It's a bit moralistic. But it's, I mean, I would translate it as self-respect. Otapa mm. um, is decorum or um, being... It's about our awareness of being with others in a moral sense. And it's those two operating in, in a dialectical relationship in our lives which help to govern our behaviour here. And those, I think, well, certainly, Utapa is installed in us from a very young age because it's enculturated. You know, that's where you get the difference in morals between societies. Um, morality is enculturated you know, within various societies, so you get a kind of moral relativism. One culture's morals might be quite different from another culture's morals. But there's still that sense of morality there within it and actually there's a very good definition of this which is actually what defines this moral culture is the fear of the judgments that others make on you yeah, that's what it is about uh, whereas the ethical, the hiri which is why I call it self-respect is the judgment you make on yourself <laughs> about it. it has nothing to do with others it's the way that we judge ourselves even if no one else ever knew. Even if no one, exactly. Even if no one else ever knew, which is why you can see it's translated as shame sometimes. So it's when we have our ethical goals, ideals, and we fall short of them in our own eyes that it becomes important. Yeah. And it's really the operation of these two which defines moral and ethical behaviour in the world. And so, in other words, it's a kind of ethical psychology behind it. One last question. Jeeva and I are going to argue and so on. The rest of them are Kagyu practitioners. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? Any more questions? <laughs> no? Okay. Is this the last talk? This is the last talk from me. There'll be a question and answer session tomorrow evening. <laughs> <laughs> Fritz Perls. Fritz Perls. Yeah. Thanks. Gestalt psychologist. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody, and uh, see you tomorrow. <laughs>
So there's going to be a question and answer session in here tomorrow night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.